A desperate Justin Trudeau splurges to win a Security Council seat at the United Nations. Canadian energy projects grind to a halt again. And the left shows its true character by attacking Jordan Peterson in his time of need. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. I am audio only this week. There'll, there'll be clips and there'll be other footage for the uh, for the videos, but I don't have my camera with me. I am on a little sabbatical. I'm down in California with my family, spending some time relaxing, also working on a few bigger projects for True North. So bear with us for the next few episodes. We will not have video, but hopefully you will enjoy the show nonetheless. So today I want to talk, let's talk about Justin Trudeau trying, desperately trying to create a legacy for himself. So he is splurging, spending money, spending taxpayer dollars, trying to win a seat on the Security Council at the United Nations. To me, this is sort of a useless, this is a useless endeavor. This is just, you know, maybe one at one point in the past, the United Nations Security Council was a very important place to be and a very influential place where you could, you could really have an impact and assert yourself and create a, a real impact on the global stage. Well, the United Nations is, is just sort of a mess. Everybody knows this. It's, it's, a, it's a real cor- corrupt body full of sort of the world's worst dictators and despots uh, meeting together. It really, you know, it, it's a place for people to feel important, um, but they don't really do anything. You know, the real players, the real actors on the world stage are the individual nations, you know, especially with a strong leader like Donald Trump in the United States, who's actually putting forth ideas and putting forth policies and plans to try to build a better world. Um, if you look at, you know, his deal of the century that he just announced, creating a state, uh, proposing a state for the Palestinian people and a peace deal with Israel. I mean, that's action. That's that's the sort of legacy deal that you create. Uh, whereas, you know, with Justin Trudeau, you just sort of see this desperate politicized attempt to try to get a seat on the United Nations Security Council. It became politicized and political recently. It didn't used to be a thing. It used to be that sort of, you know, all the parties in Ottawa would come together um, to help support a bid for the United Nations. Well, the Liberals severely undermined the Conservative bid. So under Stephen Harper, the Conservatives tried to have a bid back in 2011. The Liberals at the time undermined it. They said that the Conservatives didn't deserve it. Michael Ignatieff was the leader of the Liberal Party. He's sort of a big wig in terms of foreign policy and international relations theory. And so as a sort of major player on the world stage himself, him casting doubt over Canada's ability to sit on that seat with Harper. A lot of people blame that for the reason why Canada didn't get it. Also, Canada didn't really do what it needed to. I don't think that um, conservatives really place the same amount of value as the liberals do on something like this. Um, the idea was that, you know, in order to get a seat on the UN Security Council, you have to kind of wine and dine the worst people in the world, <laughs> the worst people under the planet, um, not just UN bureaucrats, but you have to convince other nations um, that you are worthy of their vote. So you have to sort of, you know, schmooze with these corrupt dictatorships and, and just really, truly horrible people. And that that's what we're seeing right now. That's, that's what the liberals are doing. So Justin Trudeau has just committed $10 million to African nations, uh, of course, to help promote gender equality. And this really is just, uh, you know, a bid to sort of help bribe people, uh, bribe these nations that may consider voting for Canada on the United Nations Security Council. Canada spent millions and millions of dollars um, trying to get this seat uh, under Trudeau. 
Uh, basically, the council has 15 members, five are permanent, and then 10 are elected by the assembly for two-year terms. So this year, there are three different countries that are bidding. It's Ireland, Norway, and Canada. So the three countries will bid for the two seats. And so, you know, you, you have to assume that all the European countries are going to vote for either Ireland or Norway, which is why Trudeau has his eyes set on Africa and bribing those African nations for a seat. Um, this is reading from John Iveson's recent piece in the United Nations. This is this is really just kind of cringeworthy, the kind of stuff where, you know, this is where Canadian taxpayer dollars are going. So this is from Iveson's piece. It says, Trudeau will attempt to make deals with leaders from countries like Tanzania, which Amnesty International recently accused of ruthlessly disemboweling its human rights framework. The Democratic Republic of Congo, which stands accused of despoiling tropical forests and endemic violence. South Sudan, where the UN says war crimes have taken place, and Kenya, where Human Rights Watch says police have been responsible for disappearances and extrajudicial killing. Iveson notes that Canada already sends nearly $2 billion in overseas aid to a host of countries in Africa, including the four above listing. So not only is Canada spending millions of dollars directly on the bid in terms of like sending staff over there to try to schmooze, to try to wine and dine, uh, all the costs of just trying to get the seat, add that to the billions, $2 billion plus dollars that we sp send in aid to sort of try to appease and bribe all these countries. I mean, you just have to imagine like, what is this all for? What What is the end result other than Justin Trudeau desperately trying to create a legacy, create a sort of name for himself? But really, what does Justin Trudeau stand for? What is his legacy? What does he even believe in when it comes to foreign policy? I mean, there was so much talk when he got elected, all the sort of sort of arrogant, braggy, boasting, saying Canada is back, the kind of equating the Liberal Party is Canada and Canada is the Liberal Party. So, you know, you kind of at least expect him to have some kind of a foreign policy. But really, what have we what have we seen from Justin Trudeau? We saw him severely embarrass the entire country when he went to India. Not only did he dance around in ridiculous costumes and literally dance before giving a speech, uh, but he also brought a terrorist with him as part of his entourage, which was exactly the thing that the Indian government was criticizing him for, was snubbing him for, was refusing to meet with members of his inner cabinet because they said, look, you don't take the threat of Khalistani terrorism seriously. Justin Trudeau was in India to try to sort of say, oh, yeah, we do. We, we do take it seriously. And lo and behold, he brought a terrorist with him on the mission. So that was just completely embarrassing for all of Canada on the world stage. But that's far from the only time that Trudeau has totally miss had a misstep on his foreign policy. I mean, look at what's happening with China. Look at the look at the uh, extradition of the Huawei executive that came to Vancouver. I mean, why, why was she even permitted to come into Canada if there was an outstanding warrant for her in the United States? And look at the situation with the two Michaels, the two Canadian men being held hostage, basically, as political prisoners without charges in China. Trudeau is just completely impotent at dealing with that. And again, it's just one of 100 examples. Um, he was basically laughed out of the trade deal with NAFTA. Trump turned his back on him and Trudeau was placed in a situation where he had to beg and grovel just to be able to be part of the new NAFTA deal. Um, you know, Canada 
has again and again and again failed to walk away with trade deals when it comes to, you know, Japan, New Zealand, China, Australia. We've had major issues and a total inability uh, to get that done. So Trudeau's policy, Trudeau's legacy is just really not that much. And so you kind of see this as as a desperate attempt. You know, we know Justin Trudeau's a feminist. We know he loves to brag about himself and talk about how great he is at these sort of international meetings. But again, when it comes to policy, there's not much there. So we're left bribing uh, the worst of the worst in terms of right now, (laughs) African despots, uh, giving them money to supposedly, what, focus on building gender equality. I'm sorry to say, I think that that is probably a pretty low priority. When when you're dealing with uh, a tin puck dictatorship that allows no economic freedom, um, you know, human rights abuses, warring factions, terrorism, terrorist insurgencies, all of the issues uh, that some of these African nations face, uh, the idea of, you know, enhancing gender equality is probably pretty low on the list. I think, you know, securing basic uh, safety, uh, the rule of law, you know, creating jobs, those are probably a bit more high on the priority list, as opposed to what making sure that there are equal uh, political representation of men and women. I mean, it, it's, it's silly. You, you know, you could say, making sure that there's uh, education available to both boys and girls would be a good start. But, you know, to many of these countries, they don't even have the basic education for anybody. It's it's not like it's one-sided. So, again, this is just sort of a fool's errand, and I, I find it really desperate and pathetic uh, that Trudeau is so focused on this institution that really lacks credibility, really lacks influence. It's not the United Nations that it was, you know, a few decades ago. And having a seat at Security Council doesn't doesn't do anything. It doesn't create any kind of impact on the world stage. And, you know, Trudeau is just kind of grasping at straws these days to try to stay relevant and try to do anything um, that would kind of impress Canadians. I don't know if you saw a recent polling found that only four out of 10 Canadians approves of Justin Trudeau and, and his role as prime minister. And, you know, it's not surprising. He's, he's not really doing anything. He, he's just not very relevant these days and things aren't going very well for him. Okay, moving on. I, I feel like we talk about this topic a lot on the program, but you know, there's just new stories that pop up every single week that, again, just illustrate this point that Canada is a country that is fundamentally broken. We cannot get things done. We cannot get things built. We can't build the criti- critical infrastructure needed to get the economy moving, to get our resources to market, to, to have a functioning country uh, with a functioning economy. And so over the weekend, there were sort of headlines uh, that dominated over protesters who were protesting against the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, which is a $6.2 billion uh, pipeline that would transport natural gas from northern British Columbia, northeastern British Columbia, out to the coast. Well, as we've seen over and over and again, there are just a couple of very, you know, well-organized, well-funded, media-savvy protest groups that just tend to use the heckler's veto. They they insert themselves right in the middle of the project. They prevent Canadian workers from doing their jobs, which again creates this sort of domino effect of Canadian jobs being put at risk uh, Canadians being unable to go to work because they cannot get their products to market. And instead of, you know, society and our country viewing these people as they are, which is basically a, a thorn in the side of our economy that is causing great economic 
turmoil for untold numbers of families, of, of families that are unable to, you know, have the livelihood that they once had because of these essentially spoiled brats throwing a temper tantrum. Uh, we don't view protesters with this sort of disdain that we should. They're undermining the rule of law. They're undermining faith in the market. They're, they're undermining the ability of our country to, fo- to, to function. Um, and instead of viewing them as they are, they sort of get celebrated. They, they get held up as these sort of heroic figures. And, and the media really, really, really does a disservice to this. So over the weekend, there were a lot of media stories because there were protesters who were blocking the train tracks near Belleville, Ontario. So these protesters got on the train tracks, blocked via rail, which is a commuter train that takes uh, folks from you know Toronto up to Ottawa over to Montreal, and they blocked the train. So via rail had to suspend its service between Toronto and Ottawa on a Sunday afternoon. In you know what does it, what does a pipeline going from northeastern British Columbia out to the coast, the west coast. What does it have to do with Ontario? Why is Ontario, you know, why are they blocking critical infrastructure in that part of the country? It, it, it really is mind boggling why they do these kind of things. But again, instead, you know, this was all over the news. And instead of treating these people with absolute scorn um, for undermining the rule of law, for blocking people's ability to, you know, get home to their families and get and get to work or get, you know, get to where they need to go. Um, you know, these these people are <laughs> permitted, you know, they're permitted and, and they get these positive stories written about them as if they're some kind of hero. So the protests were told were in support of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, which is the place where the uh, original protests are taking place, people that are trying to block that pipeline in British Columbia. They claim that the RCMP have raided the camps full of protesters, and those people are working to stop that gas line pipeline in British Columbia. So supposedly in solidarity with the people in British Columbia, we have crazy, crazy people out in Ontario, uh, again, blocking train tracks, commuter train tracks, and stopping people from being able to carry on with their lives. There are a couple of major issues. So sure, some First Nations communities don't approve of natural resources. They don't want to see it happen. Some of them have valid concerns about the sort of safety of the projects and concern about preserving the natural environment. Fine. Um, a lot of them, you know, it's, it's, it's really just people being transplanted in, uh, flown in, you know, very ideological, anti-development, um, anti-resource people being flown in to just cause chaos. So in Ontario, the people that blocked the train were part of the First Nation community. And so the media kind of, you know, focuses in on that, the fact that there are First Nation protesters. What they don't really mention is that there are 20 elected First Nation communities that support this pipeline, that support Canadian law, that don't recognize the jurisdiction of the one individual First Nation community in northern British Columbia, the Wet'suwet'en community and their law that they say is going to, you know, block this pipeline. So 20 First Nations community communities support the pipeline and also a hereditary chief of the skin tiny nation also supports the pipeline so this is the hereditary chief her name is helen michelle of the skin tiny nation and she supports the pipeline i don't know why they protest and we walked in that area on foot through a consultation with lng and there was no buildings there there was nothing 
after the approval of LNG, they started building facilities there, and it's only one big family that used that. And a lot of the protesters are not even with Sotain people. So you hear that. She says that a lot of the protesters aren't even from that First Nation. She doesn't understand why they oppose it. Here is another member of that community. Her name is Shirley Wilson. She's also a Wet'suwet'en Nation member, and she does not agree with the protest. But again, you don't really see the media holding up these voices, holding up these strong women who are speaking out against the corruption and against the foreign-funded protesters that have been sort of dropped in um, to, to mislead the people about what's happening. I don't agree with the protest at all because... For one thing, it's all one-sided. It's more like one family, one little group from a family from Morristown. Most of them come from Morristown and maybe a few from Hazleton. I'm not sure of who's all there. And also the protesters that are there, a lot of them come from um, out of area places. There are people I've heard that are from the east of Canada, some from United States and some that follow the protest um, field, you know, throughout North America, they jump around. I don't know where they get all their money to fly around and do all these things, but um, I just don't agree with it. I think they brought a lot of disruption and disunity and everything to our culture. We also care for the land, but we have to live a balanced lifestyle. It's not reality for every person to live out in a canvas tent. Well, there you go. Speaking truth. And again, why aren't these kind of voices promoted in the mainstream media? Why do they focus so much on highlighting the sort of angry uh, anti-industry people when there are also, you know, there are people on both sides and it's important to show both sides. You, you, you can get the protesters side of the story by tuning into the mainstream media. We try to bring you the other side of the story. And this is just one example of, you know, things not being able to get built in Canada. There was just really a shocking story that came out in the Huffington Post last week. And I want to go through it. It's from Althea Raj. And the headline says, Liberal MPs urge Trudeau to reject massive Alberta oil sands mine. Liberals are concerned the $20 billion project would undermine a pledge to be net zero by 2050. So according to Raj, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau heard an earful from his Liberal caucus Wednesday, with MPs passionately urging his cabinet not to approve Tech Resource Limited's massive 20 billion frontier oil sands mine project in Alberta. So basically, if you have been following the economic situation in Alberta, following the sort of decline of the oil and gas sector and the subsequent, uh, you know, just collapse of jobs, of industry, of all the things that are connected to that in the province of Alberta. I mean, this project is giving people hope with all the holdups, all the pipelines that haven't been built, all the companies leaving Canada and going elsewhere. This project is being held up by so many who sort of see it as a glimmer of hope, uh, light at the end of the tunnel, you know, a big $20 billion investment creating lots and lots of jobs. Um, the, the plan would be to create the, the proposal 
The proposal is to see the mine north of Fort McMurray operate for 41 years, cover more than 29,000 hectares, and produce about 260,000 barrels of bitumen a day. So from a jobs perspective, from an economic perspective, this is really good news. This is really exciting for all those folks who have been laid off, who are desperate to work, who are trying to get back in the action. And again, this is a little bit of hope, but politicians in Ottawa do not see it that way. No, no, no. The thing that Justin Trudeau was getting an earful over was the fact that apparently liberals are concerned about a 2050 pledge to be net zero in terms of our CO2 emissions. So apparently Trudeau is getting pressured by the leftists in his caucus to turn down jobs today, to say no to people who want to get back into the economy, say no to a huge project that would pour billions of dollars into the Canadian economy, say no to that because of some hypothetical plan to reduce our CO2 emissions in 30 years, 30 years from now. I mean, who knows what is going to happen in the next 30 years in terms of the science, in terms of technology, in terms of, you know, what we believe about the planet, what we know about the planet. Are there other ways to reduce our CO2? Perhaps we'll have new information. Perhaps the planet will stop warming and start cooling. I mean, there's so many variables that we don't know. What we do know about this project, though, is that it will create 7,000 jobs during the construction phase, another 2,500 jobs after that. It will create about $70 billion worth of taxes and royalties, which will go to local, provincial, and federal governments. So this is, again, a big project. It is a creating a big capability, and yet... Uh, supposedly we're told that the prime minister is getting pressure from environmentalists in his caucus. I think that this is just sort of signaling so that Justin Trudeau has an opportunity to say no. Like he, he can say, well, I wanted to, you know, allow this project to go forward, but I was getting all this pressure. I, I see this piece as, as sort of pre-positioning in some way. I don't know exactly what is going to happen, but I really, really, really hope that Justin Trudeau sticks with his guns and allows this project to be approved. The project's already been approved. It's already gone through all of its, jumped through all of its hoops. It's been approved. The idea now that politicians are talking about pulling it back, I mean, this would be absolutely disastrous. I mean, as bad as things are in Alberta, as many voices as we hear talking about Alberta independence or Western separatism, if Justin Trudeau and the Liberals actually stopped this project, I, I, I don't even know what would happen, but it would be very, very bad for Canada and very, very bad for Justin Trudeau and his Liberals. And speaking of those Liberals, we had Bill Morneau go on Power and Politics with Vassie Capello over the weekend on CBC. And, I mean, this guy is just so arrogant. And, and he, he explains things with such spin. Watching him talk about uh, what's going on in Alberta, basically it makes it seem like he's the savior that came in to save Alberta. And he stepped in because this big, bad American oil company, uh, what he says, abandoned Alberta. I mean, you know, in order to create a narrative like that and to, to believe this, I'll, I'll play the clip so you can see what I'm talking about. But man, this guy is just so arrogant. You know, really, we got to think back to why we're here. We're here in this project because there was a lack of ability for the private sector to deliver. We had a you know the Houston. Conservatives blame that on your government. Well, we had a Houston company that went back to Houston and basically abandoned Albertans and abandoned Alberta. And so we had to step Did in. they abandoned them? I mean, they were, they were facing huge amounts of political 
uh, uncertainty, right? You got a, a, a government in BC that's saying we don't want this pipeline here. Uh, lots of uh, indigenous communities saying we're willing to do what it takes to stop this. I mean, if you were running that private company, would you take on that risk? Well, actually, you've pointed out perfectly. Those were the reasons. Well, no, she didn't point it out perfectly because she only described the government of British Columbia as well as, again, the media always does this. They highlight the native, the, the First Nations communities that oppose the pipelines and ignore all the voices like the ones I talked about earlier in the show that promote the, the, the pipelines and promote Canadian industry. And so, of course, Bill Morneau is going to say, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Those were the, that was the political uncertainty. Well, no, Bill Morneau. No, it was the federal government that created the uncertainty. It was the feds that blocked the pipelines. It was the feds that banned tanker ships off the West Coast. So if you're talking about the political uncertainty, you cannot just simply ignore the federal government and the role that Justin Trudeau has played, and not to mention the carbon tax, not to mention the just total inability, again, of things to get done in this country. And for Bill Morneau to just sit there and say, oh, this Houston company abandoned Alberta. No, no. The federal government abandoned Alberta. The feds abandoned Alberta. They created uh, a, a regulatory situation where it's just hostile to businesses. And you can't really blame the businesses for leaving Alberta when you have the type of governance that we have in Canada. The Trudeau government is just so clueless. They're so clueless. Okay, let's move on. This is really a sad story. I mean, the whole the whole thing is just really a bit distressing and upsetting to watch. Jordan Peterson seeks emergency drug detox treatment in Russia. So, I mean, Jordan Peterson sort of had this just huge rise to sort of fame and notoriety. He's an incredibly thoughtful, incredibly powerful presenter. And, you know, he kind of started delivering the right message at the right time um, to kind of combat you know, just all kinds of stuff is happening in our society. He helps explain things in, in just a very succinct and clear way. He kind of created a big following for himself. He put out his book and then he became a huge target for the left where they were just, you know, constantly attacking him, uh, turning his words, twisting his words, making it seem like he was saying things that he wasn't. And they kind of created a controversy out of him. I mean, Jordan Peterson is incredibly influential. He, he's, he's really just an inspiring human being. Um, Unfortunately, he's just had a really tough go of it lately. The last, I would say, almost a year, um, things have been really sad for him. You know, he's usually really public. He's usually out there, you know, doing a lot of interviews, doing, uh, you know, a lot of speeches, a lot of events. I, I've seen him speak publicly a couple of times and it's just phenomenal. Um, but, you know, so what happened was that his wife got diagnosed with cancer. Um, he was having a tough time dealing with that. And so he was subscribed a potent anti-anxiety medication. Apparently, the medication had the opposite effect that it was supposed to. And he became not only sort of dependent and addicted to that drug, but it was also having the opposite effect that it was supposed to. So last time I, last thing I heard from him was that he uh, was in a sort of um, rehab center in New York somewhere. Um, that was an update that his daughter gave. Well, she's just given a new update. So Michaela Peterson um, posted a new video where she describes what has been going on uh, with her father. It's a very somber video. She says that he's been in unbearable discomfort and that he went to Russia, um, which was a decision made in extreme desperation because they couldn't find a better option, basically saying that he had had several failed attempts um, and with treatments in North American hospitals. Um, and so him going to Moscow, you know, pr pretty, pretty desperate 
pretty sad stuff. So let's play a quick clip of Michaela Peterson doing the Peterson family update for February 2020. Dad was put on a low dose of a benzodiazepine a few years ago for anxiety following an extremely severe autoimmune reaction to food. He took the medication as prescribed. Last April, when my mom was diagnosed with terminal cancer, the dose of the medication was increased. It became apparent that he was suffering from both a physical dependency and a paradoxical reaction to the medication. For the last eight months, he's been in unbearable discomfort from this drug, made worse when trying to remove it because of the additional withdrawal symptoms stemming from physical dependence. He experienced terrible akathisia, which is a condition where the person feels an incredible, endless, irresistible restlessness bordering on panic and an inability to sit still. The reaction made him suicidal. After several failed treatment attempts in North American hospitals, including attempts at tapering and micro-tapering, we had to seek an emergency medical benzodiazepine detox, <clears throat> which we were only able to find in Russia. It was incredibly grueling and was further complicated by severe pneumonia, which we've been told he developed in one of the previous hospitals. He's had to spend four weeks in the ICU in terrible shape, but with the help of some extremely competent and courageous doctors, he survived. The decision to bring him to Russia was made in extreme desperation when we couldn't find any better option. The uncertainty around his recovery has been one of the most difficult and scary experiences we've ever had. Wow, so pretty intense stuff. Our, our prayers are with the Peterson family during this just incredibly difficult time. And, you know, as, as we're watching this and learning about this, it's just incredibly sad and, and disturbing to hear about. Um, you know, of course, I, tw Twitter is just a, a terrible place and this kind of stuff, you know, you just almost expect it to happen. But of course, um, the left is attacking Peterson at, th at this point, you know, when when he's truly at rock bottom and suffering from what sounds like a pretty awful, um, you know, a, a pretty awful condition. Um, you have you have people on social media and people generally on the left sort of celebrating it and using it as an opportunity to kick someone when they're down and virtue signaling. So here we have someone who says that they are a professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa named Amir Atran. So he posts this on Twitter, hashtag karma, Jordan Peterson, oracle to gullible young men, preacher of macho toughness and hectoring bully to snowflakes, is addicted to strong drugs and his brain riddled with neurological damage. He deserves as much sympathy as he has shown others. I don't really know what that means because I've seen and understood Jordan Peterson to be a very sort of caring and sympathetic person, very compassionate and what seems like a very, you know, committed father and husband and, you know, public intellectual who really takes time out um, to mentor and help young people, specifically young men, because that's who, uh, you know, resonates with his with his speeches. But, uh, you know, I'll tell you, I really, really appreciate and like Jordan Peterson's lecture as well. So it has the ability to reach a broader audience than just sort of young men. But regardless, again, so this, you know, this individual, he posts this story from a source called the Varsity, which, you know, is just, you know, a left wing uh, source that probably took whatever Jordan Peterson uh, said out of context. So the article says, I don't think that men can control crazy women. 
And again, I don't even want to go into the details of it because I'm sure it was just, you know, Jordan Peterson speaking the truth and someone, you know, taking it out of context and making it seem like he was trying to say that all women are crazy or attacking all women when, you know, he was probably talking about something specific. And this guy goes on and on and on um, with sort of <laughs> Peterson derangement theory. He was far from the only one to do this. We also saw Nora Loretta chime in. Nora Loretta is sort of known for just being kind of heartless and and saying horrible things just to get attention. Uh, you might recall she put out a pretty horrific tweet in the aftermath, uh, in the immediate um, days following the tragic uh, bus crash that killed members of the Humboldt Broncos, uh, making a comment about how the only reason that Canadians really cared was because the they were young white boys, um, again, trying to mix sort of identity politics and, and again, get attention um, by just, you know, it, it's like she, she takes joy in saying really, really stupid things and getting a bunch of conservatives worked up and upset. So she's doing her shtick. She says, I hope for years of hell in Perpetua for Jordan Peterson. You have that many captive young men and you turn them onto nihilism and misogyny. Sorry, but nah. Uh, okay. I mean, sometimes it's not even worthwhile to give these people attention, which is why I didn't bother, you know, commenting about this on Twitter. Jordan Peterson's whole thing is that he turns people off of nihilism. He tries to convince people that that life has meaning and that they can they can live meaningful lives um, by taking steps to have a, you know a positive impact for the world around them. He, he's literally fighting against nihilism. He's not turning people on to nihilism. Uh, but again, Nora Loretta just loves attention and she loves to be sort of a bully saying mean, hurtful things. You know, it's kind of sad. You so, someone someone comes out. Um, you know, Michaela Peterson comes out and shares a very personal story of what her family is going through, clearly a very painful time. Um, and what do the left, what does the left do? What do members of the left do? They jump up and try to kick him when it's down. We, we saw this last week with Rush Limbaugh when he announced that he had uh, cancer. There were so many people on social media that were sort of, you know, mocking him and cheering him on. It's just, it's really despicable. It shows the true character of these people. And sadly, Twitter has just become this home for, you know, horrible, mean comments, as well as uh, sort of absurd levels of censorship that are pretty one-sided. So, you know, I don't really have a lot of time for Twitter these days. I don't think it's the best way to communicate. And, you know, it kind of rewards bad behavior, rewards people who are doing the kind of thing that Nora Loretta does, which is say horrible, mean things just for attention, just you know, so that she can kind of egg on people and create a stir for herself, create a name for herself and try to grow her audience. So no, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to fall for it. I don't think, I don't think you should either. I think we should ignore that kind of bad behavior, but it is sad to see. And it does show who these people truly are. Well, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. Don't forget to check out our website, which is tnc.news. You can stay up to date with all the latest news and opinion on Canadian politics, recovering the conservative leadership race, and so much more. So check that out, tnc.news. Okay, we will be back on Wednesday for another episode. Thank you.